Listener Production. Gidget Foundation Australia acknowledges the continuing connection to culture, lands, waterways and communities of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And we pay our respects to traditional owners of country, both past and present, throughout Australia. This podcast contains conversations about suicide, loss, depression and anxiety that some listeners may find distressing. If you or anyone you know needs help, don't hesitate. Contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or emergency services on triple zero. As we know in life, not everything goes to plan. Dread sets in immediately when you read a look on someone's face or a tone in their voice. I could just tell there was something wrong. Annabelle Bauer is the mother of five children, but she'll only get to see four grow up. Her fourth child, Miles, was stillborn, a tragedy which altered the course of her life forever. When I lost Miles, I wanted Miles. I didn't want another baby that wasn't him. I wanted him. Child loss is every parent's worst nightmare, and the grief that follows can be unbearable and bewildering faced and forced with the impossibility of moving on. I was shocked by how devastated I was and I didn't think my grief, I thought it was just, I was over-dramatising everything. Once you say goodbye, that's, it's gone forever. Pregnancy and the first year of parenthood is a time of major change in a person's life that without the right support can lead to or prolong perinatal depression and anxiety. For too long, these parents have suffered in silence, but that doesn't have to be where the story ends. Hi, I'm Davina Smith, and in this podcast, we tell the silent truth of PNDA loudly, and we meet some of the one in five mothers and one in 10 fathers who've lived through it. Ready to start talking. I'm Annabelle, and I'm one of the one in five mothers who have experienced perinatal depression and anxiety. Today, we'll be discussing grief and child loss with psychologist Dr Chris Barnes. She's joining us later to discuss the ways parents dealing with this unimaginable situation can learn to live with the grief and adjust to life after loss. Well, Annabelle, tell us about your family. Did you always want a big family? I'd always dreamed of having a big family. I really enjoy the chaos of lots of people in the house. My first marriage broke down after I'd had two little boys and it devastated me that I might not have any more children. Then I met a lovely man, my builder. We married and went on to have three children together. And one of those was our son, Miles, who was very sadly stillborn. So you've got Alfie, Ted, Bonnie, Miles and Tom. Was this always the plan? Well, I don't think the, the gap from... I have a teen, a tween, a toddler and one in between. That was not the plan. I'd envisaged probably children far closer together. But as we know in life, not everything goes to plan and you can't really design your family as you wish always. You're so lucky and yet I've got a friend who tells me that anyone who has lots of kids has unicorn pregnancies and unicorn babies. Everything yeah. goes to plan, everything's perfect. In your case... 
nothing went to plan, did it? You had a really rough ride. Yeah. So my first baby, Alfie, was born on time, very beautiful, healthy baby. But from then on, it was a real struggle. Ted was born early and tiny. He had a condition called in utero growth restriction. Bonnie was far more severe in her growth restriction. And looking after her in the NICU, you realise just how fragile babies are, that just being a few weeks early isn't a minor thing. Their brains haven't fully developed yet. You're physically not ready to have given birth. So there are so many factors that contribute to it being a scary and stressful time. While you were looking after two other children at home and a husband. (laughs) Yes, thankfully we didn't have the dog yet. (laughs) That might have tipped me over the edge. So you'd had three tricky pregnancies, each with their own challenges. What was Miles' story? Was he planned? He was planned. And I remember people saying, are you crazy? You know, three's a lot, four's bonkers. Why would you go there? And I just really wanted to have another baby. I wanted a sibling for Bonnie who was with us all the time because the boys we share with their father. I'm quite stubborn and once I decide to do something, it, it will happen. Miles, ironically, was a very healthy baby until 20 weeks no signs of growth restriction. So I was feeling really positive about it and actually starting to settle into that sense of this is going to be okay and it's all travelling along nicely. You go for your 20-week scan. Yeah. It's your birthday. Yes, it was my birthday. It was school holidays. I had both boys with me and I just thought, oh, well, it's a routine scan, everything's fine. It'll be really fun for them to see the baby. Did you have your husband there? No, he wasn't there. And the scan was taking forever. And my second son, Ted, who's a bit out there, he kept saying, I can see the penis. It's definitely a boy. <laughs> so you didn't know it was <laughs> We a didn't know what it was. And he was carrying on. And then having had so many pregnancies and scans, especially in a high-risk pregnancy, I thought, this is taking forever. I can't quite understand why it's an hour in and we still are here. And the clinician asked if the boys could go to the waiting room and I just, it sort of dread sets in immediately when you read a look on someone's face or a tone in their voice. I could just tell there was something wrong and she just said, oh, there is something wrong with the baby's brain. I need to take another look. And I just immediately went into panic mode of worst case scenario, um... It was reviewed by the doctor and he said, our equipment isn't high grade enough. You'll need to go and get a really high level scan. And it was, you know, two weeks before Christmas. So everything's booked out. Everyone's busy. People are going on leave. So it just became from the morning of waking up, it's your birthday. Let's go and have a scan to just pure, utter fear for what was going to happen next. And really no answers at that point. We were just told there was something very, very wrong with the baby's brain. I've had a scan before at 20 weeks where you walk in, you think you're just going to count 10 fingers, 10 toes, see the nose. That moment before they say something's wrong, you get an inkling that this isn't going to go to plan, do you? Yes. And I think also often people think it's just the scan to find out the gender or to tick all the boxes and off you go. It's actually a highly 
complex, detailed medical scan, which looks at you know, the chambers of the heart, the ventricles in the brain and so on. And I guess in a Pollyanna kind of world, it is, you know, it should just be a happy, joyful occasion. So when it's not, that abrupt switch of pace is, it's almost confusing because you go in expecting one thing and you walk out bereft and confused and terrified. And you've suddenly got to become a medical expert right there and then to understand what's going on so you can make decisions. How did that play out? We had a really difficult time. We had a private obstetrician who was a conscientious objector to terminations in any circumstances. And at that point in my life, I'd never actually heard of termination for medical reasons. So I was learning about this entire side of baby loss that I didn't know existed. I knew about miscarriage. I knew about stillbirth, neonatal death. I had never heard of someone terminating a much-wanted pregnancy. My husband had never heard of it, but immediately assumed that if we didn't continue with the pregnancy because of the severity of the diagnosis, that it would be a medical procedure or a cesarean. And then I had to explain to him that, no, we would be going in to give birth as we have with our other children. So this is not something that's just dealt with or sorted. It's The baby has to be born in some way, and medically the safest way is to give birth. The world was ticking along leading up to Christmas. Everyone was going to parties, wrapping presents. I'm a recipe writer, so friends constantly call me for recipe ideas for Christmas. And I just wanted the whole world to stop and to, to hide from everything. Did you have a choice, do you think? I thought we did. But then after an MRI, which showed that there was a blood clot in our baby's brain, which had very firmly lodged in the centre of the ventricles. Unless that moved, we knew that the fluid that was building on his brain would continue to increase. And for his gestation, it was already double the highest rate of normal. And that's during a period where all the important brain development is happening. I was praying for a miracle. My husband could see it far more clearly. It was pretty definite that this problem wasn't going to go away. But I think as a mother, you're carrying the child and I could feel him kicking and moving and I thought, how this does not make sense. How can he be so unwell yet be so safe when he's in me? And I had to rationalise it as though he were a child who had been born and was on life support and if you flick that life support off, the child would pass away. It just happened that I was the life support and my placenta was what was keeping him going. It's not a fair choice where you're choosing between a life or, or death. You're actually having to grapple with a huge amount of grey where there are a lot of what-ifs, but ultimately you know that even if the child were born, they would live a life of such pain and you know, suffering that it's almost the kindest thing to do is to let them go. The time between the scan and Miles being born, how did you cope? Really just shut down. I read every single piece of information I could get on stillbirth, terminations for medical reason, hydrocephalus, brain hemorrhages in utero. And that helped me because I love information and that helped comfort me that I had made the best decision for 
miles. One of my best friends had a stillborn baby when I had Alfie, my eldest, and we'd talked a lot about it over the years. And I rang her every day for advice. And without that, I don't think I would have survived at all. She said, just brace. You know, this is bigger than you think and it is as bad as you feel. You've got a battle on your hands, but you'll get through. Did you see a psychologist in that time? Not in that time. I think we had so many other medical appointments to go to. I didn't see my mental health at that point as being important. I just needed to make sure we did everything we could for the baby. That day Mars was born, talk us through it. Because I guess you wake up that morning and... Yeah. You actually have to take medication 24 hours before. So it's almost like the first ball has rolled out and it's it's begun. So you can't actually press stop or change your mind. It's already the wheels are in motion to give birth. And I got to the hospital and it's it's almost like your feet are glue. You just don't want to walk along the pavement because you know what's ahead. I didn't want the pregnancy to end because that meant he was gone, but I knew it had to happen. And it just, it's surreal because when you're in labour, you, it's full on. It's exhausting, it's exhilarating, it's exciting, it's every emotion under the sun and it's physically such a mammoth task. And But the reward at the end is a baby. Yeah. And this so is so there's different. no baby and it well there is a baby but the baby comes out cold and lifeless and it's just such a feeling of utter hopelessness it's sort of how could this have happened and i just couldn't quite believe that he was gone you know that in that moment you have this brief chance to form memories and to bond and to create all your moments because once you say goodbye, that's, it's gone forever. What was Miles like? Who did he look like? He looked like, he actually looks like our youngest Tom, really similar. He was very, very long and he was quite dark in colour, which often happens to stillborn babies. But he was, to me, he was a beautiful baby. I didn't look at him with horror or anything. I just thought he was perfect. You could see even physically just how much damage had been done by the blood clot because his skull was absolutely enormous. That was a comfort. I thought the scans did not have anything wrong here. I had to have surgery straight after delivery because often with preterm deliveries, the placenta won't dislodge. So I went straight to surgery and had that and then got back to the room and really just sat with him and spent time with him. I'd taken blankets in which I'd used for my other children and wrapped him in those. I'd imagine you'd want time just to stand still, almost in that room. Yeah, we did. You just wish that you could have one more moment. We had an incredible photographer come in from a charity called Heartfelt. She had a profound impact on me, which really shaped what I did afterwards. She'd had a, her first child was stillborn in almost identical circumstances 14 years before. And for someone to still be living their life to honour a baby they lost, it gave me permission to see my grief as being real and not me being 
dramatic or overreacting or too emotional because at that point I was shocked by how devastated I was and I didn't think my grief, I thought it was just I was over-dramatizing everything. I met her and heard her story and it gave me permission to just really embrace how I was feeling and just go with it. How did you support your husband then and you tell the kids through all of that when you're grappling with your own grief? I have to say I didn't support my husband at all. I was too broken. I couldn't do anything for him. He was so supportive of me that, yeah, I really didn't offer much in return. I wasn't capable. The boys were at their dad's and when they got back and we told them, they were very sad, but their their response was far less than what I'd anticipated, which I think was a relief for me. I think grief is very individual and it's not necessarily going to take the same path anyway. So the grief of a father could be very different to a mother or birth partner or whoever the other partner is. How you go through that and process it is going to be unique to you. So it's not necessarily something you're going to do in tandem. We as a family went over to Kangaroo Island, which is quite a remote place off the bottom of South Australia. We just fished and swam and I just cried for weeks on end. And when that holiday ended, school was going back and I just thought, you've just, you've got to get back to school lunches, school run, everything. It's just, life had to go on. So I would almost sort of do everything I could for the kids, get them to school and then just go back home and fall in a heap again until I had to go and get them all at the end of the day. So it was just a really, really hard, harrowing time. Other people would have been incredibly upset and distressed for you, family, friends, but people who maybe didn't even know you that well. Because at 22, 23 weeks, you are visibly pregnant. So you're, you're going to get people wanting to have a conversation with you and ask you how things are going. How do you tell people, how did you share that news? I shared on Instagram because I had run into someone who asked me how I was feeling pregnant in the heat and I had to tell her that I was not pregnant, we'd lost the baby. And I just couldn't fathom going through that on repeat with lots of people. I found it really hard when I first saw someone because I thought they're bracing to talk to me. They can't wait to just not get it over with, but they know they have to say something and they know what's happened. And it is hard for others as it was for me. I had one friend who burst into tears and then couldn't stop apologising for crying. And I said, it's actually the nicest thing anyone said to me. Your tears mean more than most words because I can see how devastated you are for me. And that is almost the ultimate comfort. I'm not alone. You feel it too. Did people want to talk about Miles with you? Not everyone. I think a lot of people find baby loss incredibly uncomfortable. It's hard to describe the depth of the pain. And whilst people aren't dismissing that at all, they just can't grasp it. There are a lot of people who have been through it and suffered in silence. I think because I've spoke about it publicly so early, they got in touch with me and that meant the world because they'd been through it and they understood. And often I didn't even know that they'd been through a miscarriage or a stillbirth until they shared their story. And it's that sense of togetherness and solidarity where 
You're talking to someone and they just get it. I had one friend who said, you will smile again. It won't always be this bad. And I didn't believe her, but she kept saying it to me over and over. And then one day it wasn't as heavy. That in itself is such a relief. That really helped me. In those moments when you were alone, I read how you said sometimes talking didn't help, but writing did Yeah, for you. And for other people, that might be yoga or gardening or running. What was it about writing that helped? I think I'm such an overthinker in life that I have so many thoughts racing that getting a lot of them down and out really helped. Everything I was spilling out onto the page made sense to me once I read it back. You know, you could see that I was struggling with guilt on top of grief. I was ruminating over many aspects of the pregnancy and it helped, I guess, quieten my mind down from all the what-ifs. Also, the how am I going to move forward kind of questions. It really helped me process all of those feelings. Was at the start, you think, of addressing your own mental health and your healing mentally. Absolutely. And when I had written so much that I thought maybe I'll write a book because I just couldn't stop writing, I then organised almost the themes to which I'd written into chapters and realised that they're all really common things that other people had been through as well. But at the time, it was almost... I was terrified of talking out loud because I thought people might just think, is she still going on and on about that? You know, surely she's over it by now. So at what point did you decide to seek more help for your mental health? I think for me, it was when I realised I was really angry. I felt really robbed of joy and I was worried that that would overshadow every other aspect of my life. And I really loved my life. I loved my children and my family and my friends, but just was so cross with so many things. And I was so reactionary and people offended me really easily with comments. I was really worried I would fall into a depressive heap once the adrenaline stopped. And having had depression at various parts in my life, including anxiety during pregnancy, I thought, I don't actually trust that I can navigate this solo. So I wanted to almost get help before it became a a bigger problem that I couldn't tackle. I went and saw a really lovely psychologist who I almost felt like she was my friend. And so going to see her, I almost told myself, I'm not going to see a psychologist, I'm going to visit my friend. It was great because I got to sit there for an hour with no inhibitions, not feeling like I was dominating the conversation or going on about things too much. It was my chance to just let it all out and talk about how I was feeling, talk about miles and not feel guilty that I was ruining a social situation or at a girl's lunch when everyone just wants to have fun and I'm there going on and on about myself, which would have been fine as well. I have lovely friends, but It really just helped me offload. How worried were you about judgment as well? I think when you're grieving, all your senses are heightened and 
99% of people will be incredibly compassionate and caring, but it's the 1% who say one, one comment that sticks. And unfortunately, that one comment can really you know, become a bit of an earworm and you perceive that to be the general consensus on grief or how you're responding. You know, I think at one stage I was told I was overreacting to something. And I thought, if only you were in my mind right now, I'm not overreacting. You just don't understand what I'm going through. But unfortunately, sometimes when you're not in the best state, you do look at that one negative comment. So I was scared of being judged. I was scared that people would think I was just holding on to the grief or not moving forward or being too down and too dedicated to miles. I had three other beautiful children to look after. I didn't want people to think I'd given up on them. What helped you move forward then? Not move on because mum's yeah. still very much part of you, but I guess life keeps moving forward. Yeah. You've got three other kids. How did you step by step, day by day, moment by moment, move forward? I moved forward by giving myself permission to be as devastated as I was, I think if I'd tried to push it aside, it would have come back later. I really just fully embraced being sad when I could be sad. I did start writing the book probably two or three months after we lost Miles. I wanted to do something that would help other women in a meaningful, practical way. I wanted as many people as possible to know that baby loss is such a devastating life-changing thing that can happen. You will never be the same again, and that's okay. There should be no pressure to get over it because you can't get over it, but there's no pressure to move forward at any pace other than what you feel best with. And I didn't want it to be sugar-coated. I wanted to have all the truths in there and to almost show people what my rock bottom looked like or what my worst moments were like or what those inner thoughts were that you're a bit scared of saying out loud in case you're judged, but they're there and they're normal and they're natural. And if you have them too, don't worry because we've all been there. You write about what doesn't help, what you shouldn't say. What are some of the things that just weren't helpful for you? For me, anyone trying to get me to focus on the kids that I had wasn't helpful because I was insulted by it because I thought I am grateful for them and I did have a really hard time being pregnant even before we lost Miles, so I'm fully aware of how lucky we are. Being told you can have another one doesn't help because a baby is an irreplaceable person. Every baby is individual and unique, so the fact that you can have another one is of no comfort because when I lost Miles, I wanted Miles. I didn't want another baby that wasn't him. I wanted him. I think a lot of people are so uncomfortable mentioning your baby or your baby's name because they're worried it will upset you. But when people say anything to me and they include Miles's name or they send me a picture of something that made them think of him, that's a beautiful way of them acknowledging his life. There's so many wonderful things that people can do and say, but I think anything that belittles grief, dismisses grief, or any line that starts with at least really needs to be just removed. 
there was something you wrote um, that I cried when I read it because it's so true. When you're pregnant, it's not just the baby inside you that is growing with each pregnancy. I feel my heart is growing bigger too. It's like an extra chamber is opening up to hold that love for that child. I lost my baby, but that extra chamber remains open and the love remains too. They are forever part of me. The baby cannot be replaced, can it? No. And when you're pregnant, part of your child's DNA actually implants in the mother. And someone told me that after we lost Miles. They said he's still in you genetically, medically. So he is not gone. And you don't, you can't switch off love. Learning how to be the mother of a child who passed away is just another part of motherhood. It's a very different part, but it's no less valid or valuable. Was there ever an end point to the grief? I think grief is something that you grow with and it does change. For me, in the first six months, it was like there was a fog. I was sick to death of feeling as low as I did. I wanted to get through it and out of it. And once I felt a lot lighter, I realised you don't have to choose whether you're grieving or is resuming business as normal, both can happen at the same time. So you can have flashes of grief and the grief will always sit within you. It's almost like it's tucked into a little pocket in your handbag that you carry with you, but it doesn't always overshadow everything you do. Your life continues, but you don't have to completely ever close that book. And you can't compare grief either, can you, or or pregnancy loss. Mm. Your story is different to lots of other women who experience loss during pregnancy, but it doesn't make theirs less Mm. validated, does it? Yeah, I think there's no point in creating any hierarchy around loss that's connected to gestation or, you know, how many children you already have or how many children you go on to have. Every story is unique, whether you had that baby grow inside you for two weeks, six weeks, 40 weeks is irrelevant. It was your child and your future you imagined with that baby and that grief is valid. So you decided you'd have another baby after all of that. (laughs) When? When did you decide? I think about a week after we lost Miles, I knew I wanted to have another baby. Didn't quite feel ready, but I was nearing 40 and I thought, I don't have time to dilly-dally and ruminate over this. It's either yay or nay. We were terrified that what had happened to Miles could happen again. So we went through pretty extensive testing and what came back was that the brain hemorrhage was a completely freakish one in a million occurrence. It was just pure bad luck. And I was just determined to have another baby. When Tom was born, I felt like I'd held my breath underwater for about a year. And when he arrived safely, I almost just finally let out that huge breath of air. But then it doesn't end there. I was very anxious with Tom until he was about 12 months. I was really worried something would happen to him. And he's the most bomb-proof kid on earth. (laughs) Nothing can hurt Tom. But it was a really, really exhausting period, which I now look back on with a bit of clarity and realise that at the time I was completely consumed by grief, by pregnancy and just by trying to keep my head above water with all that we'd been through in such a short space of time. 
So how did you do that? Supporting yourself through that 12 months of, of losing miles and falling pregnant with Tom, delivering Tom, and then in that first 12 months of his life, he might be bomb-proof. Yeah. But as mum, how did you protect yourself? I had to keep really busy. I had to just keep pulling my head out of worst-case scenario land. The more aware you are of your own signs of things spiralling, the sooner you can almost talk to yourself in a way that's kind and compassionate and understanding and not let it spiral. I also, with Miles, of course, within our family, we remember him privately, but I wanted him to have a meaningful legacy that would help people. That's what gave me the energy to really push through with the book. My husband all along said, stop putting so much pressure on yourself. If you help one person, your job is done. For me, that is the most beautiful legacy we could ever give Miles. There'll be mums and dads listening now who, for whatever reason, are experiencing their own grief. What do you say to them? I always like to remind people that their grief is completely valid. I like to tell people they will laugh and smile again and that they're allowed to laugh and smile and then burst into tears a minute later, that the ups and downs are unpredictable, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's not forever. And that their baby is forever a part of their family. And to people trying to support mums and dads who've lost a baby, what do you say to them? I often say to people, you've got to overcome how uncomfortable you feel because this is not about you at the moment. By mentioning the baby's name or by dropping off a meal, sending a card or just doing something kind for them, it will bring them such just that sense of solidarity and someone cares about me. I always say don't ask them what they need, just go and do something. That one missed call might be that the greatest joy they feel that day that someone has called and someone does care. So to read Miles' story and for families out there who need and want some comfort, where can they get your book? Miles Apart, the book, is sold on my website as well, which is milesapart.online and through Amazon and Booktopia. It's also donated to hospitals Australia-wide. So with the book, I established a charity and we've done fundraising so that we can give copies to hospitals and to the Gidget Foundation. I just think knowing that other people have been through it and survived and being able to create lives around these precious little babies who couldn't stay is hugely comforting. Annabelle, thank you. We heard from Annabelle about the deep sense of grief she felt after the loss of Miles, the confusion, the heartbreak and a pressure from herself and the outside world to move on, which can often be the most challenging part of grief. To talk about this further, we have clinical psychologist and senior clinical team leader from the Gidget Foundation, Chris Barnes, here. Chris has helped hundreds of parents, just like Annabelle, begin the healing process. And she's passionate about supporting all women, no matter what stage of pregnancy they experience loss. Chris, grief is just the opposite of a baby being born in in terms of the celebration and the joy that we often completely shy away from from talking about loss. It doesn't help though, does it? No, and I think what 
Annabelle said there is there is a range of the way that people grieve and mourn. So I think it's about respecting whatever that is. I think in the long run, it is a good idea to somehow work out whatever it is you need at the time and to honour that and to give it time. But I don't think there's any right or wrong way to grieve. Chris, when we talk about a loss during pregnancy, there, there are many different forms, aren't there? Absolutely. Miscarriage, one in four pregnancies end in miscarriages in Australia right now. It's a loss of a pregnancy in the first 20 weeks. And look, it often occurs in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy most commonly as well. Stillbirth is defined as a fetal death prior to the birth of a baby from 20 weeks gestation or it's 400 grams in birth weight. It does differ between states and approximately six babies are stillborn each day in Australia. The rate is not changing a great deal at the moment. And all these losses are so tragic and profound. It doesn't really matter. And Annabelle sort of picked up on this in her talking. It doesn't matter whether it's two weeks pregnant or 12 weeks or they all are very unique to that person in the way that they experience it and what they go through. In any sort of loss, though, there's a sense of guilt for the mother that maybe your body may have failed you in some way when that's definitely not the case, is it? No, not at all. But I think women can take on that because of the sense of responsibility they feel to deliver this baby that that will survive. And you do feel that as you're pregnant. You feel like you have to watch your diet and what you do and activities and everything. And so much effort for a lot of women goes into making sure that this baby is healthy. When things go wrong, like in Annabelle's case, it's it's nothing to do with what she did or, or didn't do. But women can take that on. And I think that can make the grieving process sometimes even more complicated. It's so hard, though, in that you're struggling with physically what's happened and then you've lost the baby. So you've got hormones, milk coming in, and then you've got to protect your mental health as well on top of it. That, that That's a huge burden, isn't it? There's an awful lot to manage, isn't there, even when pregnancy and birth goes to plan. So I think if there's interruptions during that process and things that go wrong, there's even more to manage. And you're right, you've got all the milk coming in and maybe the expectation you've got possible parental leave planned. So when something interrupts that, it just is probably the most profound, life-changing experience to go through for any, any woman and, and the people around her. What about for a a non-birthing partner, a husband? Mentally, the toll that they have, the grief that they carry can present itself in many different ways, can't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think it has an impact on everyone involved. People grieve in different ways. We've had clients at Gidget where the mum in particular wanted to talk about her baby loss every day and have a little shrine at home and involve all the children in rituals and memorials But the partner wasn't comfortable doing that and he didn't want anything in the house to sort of remind him. A lot of couples don't survive a baby loss, really. It's it's incredibly devastating. So the more that they can sort of work together and work out a way of being able to do this together and be respectful of each person's process, I think is really important. How important is it for someone who's gone through this to mourn? and to grieve in their way, whether it is by talking or like Annabelle did, like through writing or yoga or running, how important is it to find that way to work through that feeling? Well, I think often grief is not spoken about enough, and that's partly Annabelle's journey in writing this beautiful book. 
Some people find religious rituals and things like that very comforting and there might be a little bit more direction about what to do in some cultures as well. Nothing is ridiculous. We hear at Gidget things that that mums do after they've lost a baby. We had one person who's given me permission to say this, but she went around and bought Coke bottles with her baby's name on it in every single supermarket that she could find. You know, other mums sleep with the ashes of their babies. So some of these things might sound weird for people, but when you've actually been through it or you know someone who has, those sort of rituals and memorials things are really important. For people at that lowest, darkest moment where you don't think you can get out of that grief, what do you say to them? I think that's very difficult. And we have definitely had mums that talk about wanting to die and to join their baby which might sound like a very extreme thing, but we really get that. You can feel like you want to do that. Often they may not say that and they might feel quite shameful about even thinking that, but the symptoms of depression can be very real for people if they have had such a significant loss. So I think trying to talk about it and telling your partner if you have one or friends or family or seeking support if you start to feel like you are going that way and trying to be very mindful of where your thoughts are going. Are they getting very negative? Are you not wanting to go out? Are you withdrawing a lot? Are you not able to do anything nice for yourself? Which can often happen with that, what we talked about earlier, Davina, with that blaming body and blaming self. You can get quite punishing. So the element of compassion, which Annabelle also talked about, is also very important in being able to be compassionate and kind to yourself in this process. So Annabelle sought therapy. What role does that play in helping the healing process? I think Annabelle said it gave her a space to just be able to say and do whatever she felt like doing. You can come to therapy and just be however you are. It also probably gives you a bit of a a sense of what you're feeling is okay. So it sort of validates their experience of the loss as well. And a bit of education around loss can also be really helpful and letting them know what the path ahead might be like as well. What resources are there and what groups are out there for families who are looking for support? There are two particular organisations in Australia that offer free support. It would be Red Nose and Pink Elephants for stillbirth, neonatal loss, miscarriage and terminations for medical reasons as well. I think you'll be able to get some support with both of those. And then, of course, the Gidget Foundation offering free counselling. Chris, thank you so much. Thanks, Davina. This podcast is a listener production made in partnership with Gidget Foundation Australia. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens with audio production from Kelly Falston. Listener.